Thanks to our sponsor, Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local D.C. area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis. So if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who have more questions than answers, like us at DC by Foot. We're really excited to partner with them next month to learn all about personal liability as a tour guide in Washington, DC. Visit their website at malloy-law.com or call their offices at 202-335-6141. Malloy Law Offices is open 24-7, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident. podcast land tour guide tell all family uh we are back we are your friendly neighborhood semi-neighborhood uh washington dc based tour guides here with all things scandalous historical dc related larger world related all kinds of fun and exciting places periods time periods and things uh hi friends uh this is fall Thanks for coming along on a journey with us. And it is fall, which is the best time. Fall time is the best time. And we're happy to be back in your ear holes. As always, I am Rebecca. I'm Becca. And together we are... Hello, Rebecca. <laughs> we're always happy to be back with you, fam. Uh, we are in the fall. We're happy. The weather is much nicer. Come on a tour with us. If you're in the D.C. area, please let us know. We have met so many of our wonderful listeners. They've come on tours and it's been really a thrill to meet them. If you're a patron, thank you for being awesome. If you're not a patron, you're not quite as awesome. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. You're still awesome. But our patrons are the best. Uh, we love our patrons. They are the wind beneath our wings. They keep us doing the best things that we can and making life interesting. And they get a special monthly episode just for them. So make sure that you are getting that if you're a patron. And if you're not, you should get in on the ground floor with some of these episodes. We do some really excellent work on the patron monthly patron episode. And today, Becca, what are we doing? We are going to talk about a pretty pivotal event in American history, one that I think sort of gets misremembered a tad, and that is the sinking of the RMS Lusitania. This is sort of a key event. And while the RMS might tip you off that we're delving a little bit into uh, international history, this does uh, have a big impact on the United States. So yeah, we're going to be taking it back to the First World War. Yes. In fact, even before that, when it was made, the Lusitania is a RMS stands for Royal Mail Ship. And Lusitania, the name is this little bit of trivia for you, comes from a Roman province. Ooh. The Iberian Peninsula. Yeah, I know. What's now basically southern Portugal. It was called Lusitania. And so they're going to take the idea of that for the name of the ship. It is a big ocean liner. Very luxurious. 
very fancy, built by the Cunard line. So if that is familiar to you, you are probably familiar with Queen Mary and the QE2 ocean liners. This is kind of an earlier, obviously less technologically advanced version, but same basic idea across the ocean. Very exciting. Cunard is a competitor of the White Star Line, which if you're familiar at all with the Titanic, that's where we're going. The Lusitania is earlier. A few years earlier. A few years earlier, but certainly the same basic idea. Do you want to cross the Atlantic quickly? The idea is speed here. It's a bit of a speed race. Cunard and White Star are trying to one-up each other in terms of who can be faster, who can move more people, and who can do it in the most luxurious way. When the Lusitania was completed, when it was first built in 1907, it was the world's largest passenger ship. It only held that record for a handful of months as other ships were completed, but this is what we're talking about, certainly a contemporary to the Titanic in many ways. And it did in 1908 break the record for the fastest Atlantic crossing. So the idea is to be fast and the idea is to be big and lovely and luxurious. Now, a little different from how maybe you might imagine ships and things get built in the U.S. today, Cunard receives a sizable financial loan from the British government to help finance the construction of this ship. And there is a little caveat to that. You know, money comes with strings. One, the caveat is that the British Navy basically wants to apply its standards to the ship because they're adding a little provision that says that it could be converted to an armed merchant cruiser if needed. And this was something the British government did with several ships, but this is going to come up again later. Real soon. Real soon. <laughs> yeah, that's a foreshadowing right there. So f- before the First World War, this is a luxury liner. This is very fancy. You got three classes. Think you're if you're thinking of the Titanic, you're in the same neighborhood. First class, second class, third class. Very luxurious. Even for the third class passengers, you're looking at some luxury here. Like not first class luxury, but this is still very generous uh, accommodations in terms of the size, in terms of what you get, and the amenities and things like that. So this is a very nice ship. It is not as big as the Titanic. So it's actually about 30 meters shorter, 100 feet, than, uh, and obviously it's a couple of years older. So Lusitania is uh, 1908, Titanic, very memorably, is 1912. So it is shorter than the Titanic and apparently slightly less luxurious, but because Lusitania lasts longer, there actually are a lot of really great pictures. Uh, You can find them online. There's a really fantastic picture of it in New York Harbor. It's like a panoramic picture. I'll make sure to drop that in the show notes. There's a picture of it leaving on its last voyage, you know. There's a lot of great pictures of it, even for the day. So this isn't, it takes about two weeks to get across the Atlantic Ocean. This isn't like the kind of cruise where you can see a lot. There's not a lot to see in the North Atlantic. So you got to give people luxury in the ship, give them things to do. You got to have some entertainment, some places to socialize. And I do find it interesting that while, you know, of course, they're kind of in a competition with White Star for those first class passengers, Cunard and specifically Lusitania apparently had the best third class accommodations. This became quickly the ship of choice for immigrants. If you could really scrape together the money to go across, you wanted to be on Lusitania because they were said to have the cleanest and best third class accommodations. So it's, you know, I think a lot of attention gets paid to the luxury side, but this was also a practicality. People who were 
leaving Europe through Liverpool to come to America. We're using this ship to do so, which I think is really cool. And by the time we get to 1915, Lusitania has made the crossing over 200 times. It has been back and forth, back and forth. So it's about a two-week journey each way, but it is doing that journey year-round over and over and over. So this is something where the crew of which there would have been about 800 crew members and the captains who up until about 1915 are relatively the same guys. They're really savvy at this. They've done this many times. They know the terrain. They know the water. They know what they're doing. Lusitania also would have held about 2,000 passengers. So it is smaller than Titanic physically, but in terms of passenger count, it's pretty close in terms of the number of passengers it's holding. Slightly less, but a lot of the size loss is from recreational space and mechanical space, not necessarily from passenger space. So it's maiden voyages in 1907, and it can do this crossing in six days. Like, that's the record at the time. Which seems crazy. Which seems insane. That's very fast. For something this size. Yeah, I think something this big moves that quickly. That's a lot. It generally takes a little longer, but if they're trying to do speed, they can do it in six days. Um, and it's crossed a bunch of times. In fact, one of the things that I found out about Lusitania when we doing the research for this, it crosses at some point in October of 1909, and it participates in this celebration in New York City. And Wilbur Wright has brought a Wright flyer to Governor's Island in New York, and they make a demonstration. And there are these great pictures of a Wright flyer, the Lusitania and the Statue of Liberty all in the same picture in 1909. And so this is really, I don't know, that just tickled me because it's this, you know, the dawning of a new age of travel and the Lusitania is going faster and faster. It was really fantastic to see those pictures. Lusitania, though, World War I happens. And since Lusitania is a British ship, suddenly things get more complicated. Yeah, so just we're this is not we're not going to delve into the entirety of World War 1, which we've touched on in other episodes, but when England sort of declares war in 1914, per the provisions of this construction loan, it will include Lusitania on its official listing of armed merchant cruisers. And it does this for many ships to which it, the British government had given money to. It's like, all right guys, we gave you money, but now we want to list your ships as part of the British Navy, which even for the First World War, the British Navy, the Royal Fleet is unparalleled. It's unmatched. Nobody else in the world has a fleet as big. And then you add all these armed merchant cruisers because this has been England's Everything has to be imported. Everything has to be brought into the British Isles. And so they have many, 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 many ships, but commercial ships. So Lusitania is going to get marked dog-eared, as it were, as an AMC, which is what we're going to refer to it to. However, going back to 1856, so the Declaration of Paris, there are rules in place, rules of war, to protect civilian vessels. And there's all sorts of various elements to these rules, including flying your flag, making sure the name of the vessel is clear, giving passengers opportunities to disembark, which is a nice way of saying, get off the ship before we bomb it. There are rules in place to protect these kind of gray area ships, these ships that belong or are being utilized by the government, but may in fact still be carrying out civilian purposes. That said, this is a war, y'all. Do you really think in the midst of the heat of war, people are going to be parsing out technicalities? There's a big risk factor for these ocean liners when this war begins. And some of them will stop running, but not Lusitania. She is popular. 
She is quick, which is an asset. They consider that a big element for the safety. And she pretty much continues running passenger service after the war begins, going back and forth, back and forth. People still need to get across the ocean. This is the only way to do it. And so um, that would be all well and good, except for the Germans. So the idea is that because Lusitania is not a warship, it's got a war designation, but it's not a warship. It carries civilians. There should be extra rules to protect them. That's all well and good, but doesn't really always work out that way. The British, uh, there's enough demand crossing and there's enough people who want to cross the ocean in the midst of this war, knowing that they're at risk, that Lusitania still is running crossings back and forth in the midst of this war. The British obviously have the best navy in the world. They have all kinds of their, you know, it's the British, that's what they do. Uh, And the Germans have a navy, but it is nowhere near as sophisticated. There's nowhere near as many of them. They're behind the eight ball technologically. And so what they're going to, British basically blockade the German Navy as soon as the war starts and are like, yep, okay, you're done now. And so the German Navy is not really a factor except they develop submarines, what are called U-boats, and they're small and they're cramped and they're under the water because that's the nature of a submarine. And they're no joke. The U-boats are a big deal. They sink thousands of ships. And so the way that they do, it's kind of like guerrilla warfare in a, in a sort of way. Like you can't compete with the British, the big ships, like the Germans know they will lose and yes. lose badly. And so what they do is they basically go around and little pricks here and there. So they're unseen and they can strike with a torpedo and then disappear. And so they're really deadly and the Germans this is a big part of their war effort they're putting a lot of money into U-boats there's a lot of people on U-boats and they're gonna sink thousands of British ships by the end of the war so this is a real concerted effort to destabilize the British and it's such an interesting reflection on the nature of warfare when one you can't fight somebody in a conventional way you'll find a way around and that's exactly what the Germans are gonna do in sort of almost a clever way they're gonna figure out a way to get around these massive British ships. Yeah. And again, it's the British Isles, you know, England's an island. They don't just have a Navy and a fleet because they want to fight. They want to protect their goods coming in and out. And so they established a sort of naval blockade. And this is the only way that the Germans can really mess with that. And so their whole tactic, and I love the, just, it is guerrilla style warfare. It is, we are going to try to hit as many merchant ships as possible. We are trying to stop food and fuel and supplies for this war, ammunition, weapons from getting to England. And that is the German plan. You know, being on a U-boat was dangerous in and of itself. These guys were expecting to die. They were not expecting to live. You were just in this, you know, boat willing to kamikaze yourself if you had to. And they just went after every single ship. And by 1915, Germany has basically declared all of the seas around the British Isles a war zone. And they make it their stated policy. This is not a secret. This is not a secret plan somewhere. They make it their stated policy to attack or attempt to sink any allied ship they see without warning. So they have made it very clear this is what they're going to do. However, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? There's so a lot of British ships are going to be allowed to fly without their flag so that they're not identifiable. Because the Americans, we're still neutral. 
And if you're an Amer- flying under an American flag, Germans hit an American ship. That's an act of war. That's bad. They don't want to do that because they don't want to bring us in. I mean, they kind of do. That's a whole different thing. We'll get to that. We'll get to that later. But the Americans are neutral. And so the British are hoping that by not flying the flag for a bunch of their ships, they can maybe pass them off as a more neutral country. However, the Lusitania is famous. It's instantly identifiable. And it's got the big name on it, and they make no attempt to cover it up. So Lusitania is sort of an exemption. Like, it's clearly what it is. You can't disguise it. And so they don't try to. The stress of this, by the way, uh, is going to drive the early captain, the captain who'd been the Lusitania's captain for a long, long time, to retire tire early right before these last couple of voyages basically he's so stressed out and tired and ill that he's like yeah i can't do this anymore yes and wouldn't you be having to navigate what are now boat infested waters and knowing that there's an incredible threat to the lives of almost three thousand people on board every time you're crossing between your guests and your crew i don't blame him for being stressed that's not even to mention just the regular dangers of the atlantic Right, and icebergs, like, we think of the Titanic and the Lusitania as two very separate events, and they, of course, are, but there's only three years between them, and so this is very fresh in everybody's mind that, like, the Titanic didn't sink because of a torpedo, it sank because of an iceberg, right? Like, that could happen in peacetime, and so there's always danger bringing a ship across the ocean, but now we've got an additional layer of danger. I I see the stress there. That doesn't sound great to me. So as we get to May of 1915, we have a new captain, Captain William Turner, and we'll talk about some of the choices he makes. But um, Lusitania is in New York, and it is getting ready to depart to go to Liverpool to make its run back towards England. Now, just a few days before it's scheduled to leave, the German embassy in Washington, D.C., which, again, we are neutral and we still have their embassy up and running, decides to place ads in a number of American newspapers, basically reminding Americans that there's a war happening, and that vessels, quote, flying the flag of Great Britain or of any of her allies are liable to destruction. And the German embassy is basically saying, don't get on a British ship. Now, they're trying to do this to hurt Britain economically, right? They're trying to sow kind of this fear. And again, there's other elements why they're doing this. But again, if you're an American in New York City, and you're thinking about getting on the Lusitania, you're reading the New York Times, it's right there in black and white that these boats will attack any ship flying the British flag. So there's no element of surprise here. No, no, no. And the Germans are also trying to destabilize our relationship with the British because while we are neutral, I never miss an opportunity to brag on Woodrow Wilson. Uh, Woodrow Wilson has made it very clear that he's more supportive of the British than the Germans. And so he's sorting his thumb on the scale a little bit for neutrality. And the Germans know this. They're aware of this. And so they're basically trying to, like, put whatever digs they can in against, uh, in between our alliance, in between our friendship with the British. So that's the, they advertise this. They put it in several newspapers and they don't, mention the Lusitania by name, but it is very clear that this is, that's who they're talking about. They're talking about the Lusitania. They know, everybody knows a ship leaves every couple of weeks. So it goes back and forth relatively frequently. And so the, in fact, it departs on May 1st. So they're going to put this, the German embassy puts this ad in several newspapers on the 22nd of April. And then the Lusitania leaves eight days later on May 1st. So this, it's clearly, the Germans are clearly like sending a message. You are not safe on this ship. 
And the number of people on board, 1,959 men, women, children. These include over 800 crew members, or over 700, I should say, crew members are among those 1,900 people. So there's a lot of people. There's also 4.2 million pounds of ammunition being carried for the British government. That is also going to come up again later. Now, these people are not idiots. These people are smart. They sort of feel, many people feel, that despite the threats, they'll be okay. They figure, there's an assumption, right, that this Declaration of Paris rules will hold, that there will be a warning before they're attacked, that there will be time for passengers to get off the boat, and they think that Lusitania's speed is going to help. The fact that Lusitania is so fast makes it a difficult target for the German U-boats. The technology they're using while advanced for the time is not like today. The U-boat still has to zero in. It's got to lock in. You ideally need to make sure you're calculating for the speed. The faster something's going, it's harder to hit. So among the crew particularly, the speed is seen as the best asset. So they feel good. I wouldn't feel so good knowing what we know today because guess what? German U-boats sank three British ships in the waters south of Ireland in the days prior to Lusitania reaching that part of the ocean. So they are doing well enough targeting British ships. And Captain Turner is receiving over the six days of this voyage so far, every single day, repeated warnings of this activity, of these other sinkings. So there's, again, that information is coming in. He knows very well. They're about 12 nautical miles off the coast of Ireland when we get to the day, May 7th, 1915. They're actually supposed to dock later that day in Liverpool. That's where they're bound for. And this will be the 202nd crossing of the Lusitania. So that's a lot. Seems like a lot. Very, yep. Experience. Experience. They're going fast. And there's 1,266 passengers and a crew of 696. So that's a lot of people. They're about 12 miles off the, or nautical miles rather, off the old head of Kinsale. And they cross in front of U-boat 20 at 2.10 p.m. U-boat 20 is commanded by Walter Swiger, and he is gonna order to fire one torpedo. Just to back up a bit, they're nearing their destination. It is foggy off the coast of Ireland, apparently. And so the Captain Turner is going to decide to slow the boat down uh, a little bit due to concerns of fog. They're not quite within sight of land, but they're very close. They know exactly where they are. They're not in the middle of the North Atlantic anymore. They're within reach of help. And so he figures, okay, he's a little too close to shore than is advisable generally. But he said that he is not or was not zigzagging. So he'll later say that he was not zigzagging. Now, what is zigzagging? He says that he understood zigzagging is uh, only necessary when U-boats were sighted. So he has not sighted any U-boats. He's going in essentially a straight line to his destination. He's not trying to evade them. And Turner is a pretty experienced guy. He's done this a bunch, not necessarily with the Lusitania, but he's got a long career behind him. He's done this ocean crossing many, many times. And so he's relying on um, his instinct and his experience. And he's kind of not as paying as much attention to the dictates coming out of the, either the Cunard line or the British government. So he's kind of going his own way, relying on his instincts to get them where they need to go. 
which the government and Cunard to protect its assets has been telling people stay away from shore. You know, that's where the U-boats like to hang out, try to zig or evade. It's sort of like the idea of serpentining, right? You know, if you want to try to avoid being hit, you're going to keep moving. And he he has done this. Um, He's been a merchant captain for many, many years, as you said. So he, I don't think, does this out of any sort of willful neglect. It's that he feels confident in his ability because he's done it. And unfortunately, right, it, it happens too quickly for anything to be done. When that single torpedo is fired, it hits the starboard side, penetrates the hull just below the waterline. Now, they are going to have outlooks on the deck who will see basically the foam coming towards. So they know this torpedo is coming. They know it's a torpedo. There's no mistaking this for an iceberg or anything else. They see it coming. So there's the initial hit and then almost immediately a secondary explosion. And it is this secondary explosion that causes some causes some speculation and con- has continued to cause some speculation. The captain of the U-boat would maintain that they only ever launch one torpedo and their records only ever show one torpedo. Many witnesses, lookouts would say they only ever saw the streaking of the one. There is a lot of ammunition on this boat. Not to mention you have steam and coal and all the things you need to power this boat. So uh, I am not an engineer, but I feel like when you're on a ship like this, the opportunity for explosions to happen are high once you've added something like a torpedo to the mix. But there remains a question of whether there was a second missile. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it. I go, I'm on, I'm on team, not second torpedo. (laughs) I'm on team. We got hit with a torpedo and that was a chain effect into all the other flammable things. Yes. That we were carrying. That there could have been any number of other things that might've caught fire or exploded if you hit the right spot. There's got a lot of munitions on board. I don't know. This is 1915. We're not talking about perhaps more modern technology here. But you you can imagine because there's a second explosion for many on board, the assumption in the immediate moment is we've been hit twice because there's people distinctly here too. One passenger said the first torpedo, the torpedo hit sounded like this. They said, quote, it sounded like a million ton hammer hitting a steam boiler a hundred feet high, mm-hmm. end quote. And that, that's terrifying. That's terrifying. That sounds awful. The ship immediately starts to list to the side. It's basically prominent list towards starboard and starboard side and is going to sink incredibly rapidly. So the Titanic, you saw the movie, it goes on forever and ever because the sinking kind of goes on for a while. Like it's a two plus hour sinking from iceberg to like going under. But the Lusitania is less than 20 minutes. It comes in at about 18 minutes, which again, when you really think yeah. about that experience must have yeah. been yeah. horrifying. And Turner, Captain Turner, immediately tries to steam towards shore. They're not that far from land. The closer you get, the higher your survival rate can be. But there's nothing to be done. It's listing too far. They can't correct the list. They can't reverse the engines. It's too late. They're sending out an SOS. But, I mean, 18 minutes isn't enough time for anyone to get to you quickly. And within six minutes, the bow of the ship is already beneath the waves. So we're talking about a very serious 
diagonal, right? You're already starting to go down heavily within six minutes. There's 12 more minutes before it's under, but here's the thing. Here's the difference between this and Titanic, one of the many. Titanic's biggest problem is they won't load the lifeboats and get them going, right? Lusitania has lots of lifeboats. They have 48 because Titanic people have learned a lesson. They have enough and they want to load them, but it's really, really hard to load your lifeboats when your boat is tilting and sinking. It's just not possible. Of the 48, only six are actually lowered with passengers. And these are like Titanic's lifeboats, made to hold 50, 60, 70, 80 people in some cases. Most of them are going out with 11, 12, 15, because that's the only that's all that they can get on. Now, they are going to be able to pick up swimmers, pick up people from the wreckage. Some will use the what's left of the lifeboats as flotation devices, but there's just no time to actually get anybody off this boat. And so much of what happens to you is determined like where you are on the ship. If you can get to the deck and get on a lifeboat, you have a much better chance. But if you're lower down, which is usually gonna be third class, that's kind of how that goes, that's not gonna end up quite as well. Uh, and so the, the difference between Titanic is that they had time, they just didn't do much. With the Lusitania, they have neither time, they just don't have the ability to do a whole lot. And so it depends on kind of where you are, how it ends up for people. People. Um, and so it sinks incredibly fast. They aren't going to lower that many lifeboats, although some will pick up people, like some lifeboats will pick up people in the, in the ocean. Um, Captain Turner himself is washed off the bridge. So he does go down with the ship, but it's going to be washed off the bridge and survive spending three hours in the water, which is rough. It's amazing he doesn't drown and get pulled out unconscious. Yeah, considering the fact that by the time, and it's somewhat unclear from his own recollection how much of that three hours he is conscious, but by the time they find him, he's entirely unconscious. It's a miracle he didn't drown. People have life jackets if you were able to get them, but not many people were able to get their life jackets on. That is a big problem. It is sort of fascinating. The big difference between Titanic and Lusitania is because of the speed, class mattered a lot less. It didn't really matter if you were first class or third class. Your position on the ship mattered. If you were on the port side, you had a better chance of survival. If you were out on the decks, you had a better chance. People in the elevators, the poor crew down in the boilers, there was no way to get those walls up so that they could get out. Those um, bulkheads were sealed already. So position on the ship mattered way more than the class you were in. And actually the largest number, there was a really interesting economic study of this, the largest number number of survivors for Lusitania was 16 to 35, and it's fairly evenly divided among men and women and fairly evenly divided among class. And it really, I think, boiled down to physical fitness. Who could just get into a boat and get there? And if you were in that 13, 16 to 35, you were way more likely. And because there wasn't time for this whole women and children first, more men survived the Lusitania. It really is a everybody for themselves. We don't have time to go down with any sort of like dignity. Although there are, of course, incredible stories of men offering up their life jackets, offering up, you know, helping women get into the boat. Certainly there was, but it's much more of a free-for-all compared to, again, if you've seen the Titanic movie, this sort of very orderly, structured disembarkment of the ship. And I just found that economic study really fascinating. In fact, first-class passengers fared worse 
on Lusitania than Titanic and even more so than the third class passengers in many cases. So um, I just found that really, really interesting. And so like this happens very, very quickly, but they're not that far from land. So ships do come. There are people plucked out and everything. And so news of this travels very, very quickly. People are well aware this attack has happened. All things said and done, 1,195 people die. And that includes 128 traveling Americans. So that's, you know, about 10% of this passenger list, 10% of those on board are American. And I feel like when I was in school, I learned that the Lusitania was, was hit and Americans were killed and overnight, America was ready to go to war, that that was the end of isolationism. And then I became an adult and learned that that is actually really not the case. No. So there's a huge outcry. Like, this is a big deal. This is incredibly well publicized, particularly the British. This is going to feed right into their wartime propaganda because if 128 of the people who died were Americans, the rest of them were British, British. Irish, Canadian. So they're in some way connected to the British Empire. And so this is going to be a big wartime propaganda thing, the bloodthirsty Germans and the whole thing. Like, you can see the the connection really easily. And so this becomes a huge moment in terms of outrage and in terms of international outcry, but it does not actually propel the United States into the war. And the Germans are not actually all that sad about it. They don't help themselves a lot. They're like, well, you know, if you didn't want to die, maybe you shouldn't have been on a British ship. Did you or did you not see our advertisements in your American newspapers? <laughs> like, like <laughs> They're literally, kind of unapologetic. Right. Like their Admiral Tirpitz is like, well, you were kind of reckless and... You get what you get. Sorry, not sorry. Like, that's basically the, what he says. The F around and find out mentality of fighting <laughs> the First World War. That's the Germans were like, sorry. Yeah, we're, we were um, Jew. <laughs> and it is really amazing because, of course, and, and we'll talk big, we'll talk about the U.S. and then we'll kind of circle back to the British side. But um, I think that in the States, of course, there's this outrage because it's a passenger ship. Men, women, children. These are not soldiers. It feels so against the rules of war, the rules of civility. But even with all of that acknowledge, a lot of Americans are still like, this isn't our fight. We can be outraged about this, but it doesn't mean we should go to war. And the New York Times, the very next day, its headline says divergent views on the sinking of Lusitania. And it quotes a number of people who sort of say, well, we don't love it, but this is not enough for us to go to war over. And there's ways in which we can negotiate with the Germans on this. And it just, I think, really speaks to how divided America was on the idea of even considering entering into this war. And I do love that there's one American who is really, really gung-ho about us going to war. That's Theodore Roosevelt. Now, by this point, he is not president of the United States. He had lost his third party election running as the bull moose, but he immediately calls for a very swift retribution to the Germans. He's out there giving speeches. He's writing letters. And uh, Woodrow Wilson, I put in my notes, continually the worst, wants to pursue just the more cautious neutrality that has marked his presidency. Teddy writes in a personal letter that he was, quote, pretty well disgusted with our government and with the way our people acquiesce in and support it, end quote. 
he continues to basically write other letters and say it is as if Lincoln had basically ignored the shots fired at Fort Sumner and Americans praised him for keeping us out of the Civil War. Teddy is angry at Woodrow Wilson, but he's angry at America that most Americans, even this isn't enough to spur them. And so he's probably the most prominent voice that's saying, what are we doing? We cannot possibly let this stand. Listen, Teddy Roosevelt wanted to get in this war from the get-go. Like, this isn't like the that Teddy woke up the morning yeah. of Lusitania was like, oh my God, we got to go to war. He wanted to get involved. He'd been pushing Wilson to get involved. He thought Wilson's stance of neutrality was cowardly and all that Teddy Roosevelt stuff. So this adds fuel to his and it also, at this point, you're kind of going, okay, man, look, how can you ignore this? This is right. enough. And the Germans are also going to use this as propaganda, too, because what the Germans are going to say is there was contraband on this ship. We were justified. There was ammunition. They are even as they're going to lie and say that there were, like, troops and this was actually a warship and the whole thing. And at the time, you got to remember... The Germans are a large minority in the United States. There are a lot of people in this country who speak German, who have German parents or grandparents or German immigrants themselves. And so there's a lot of sympathy for the German cause, which is part of the reason America is so divided in terms of its loyalties with this war. So there's a lot of people who want to line up with the British, and there's also a lot of people who want to line up with the Germans, which is why Wilson has tried to keep us out as best he can. Um, he is definitely absolutely the worst because Wilson, he basically just shuts down all debate as Wilson is wont to do. There's a lot of talk, but Wilson will essentially keep some pro-German elements in the US quiet. He refuses to declare war, Wilson does, because Again, he's kind of the worst. And this does not lead the U.S. into war. He basically issues a stern warning. Just says, you know, we if you keep doing this, which this yeah, thing you've like already it. been doing a while, but this time there were a lot of Americans mm-hmm. on board. If you keep doing this, we might cut our diplomatic ties. And that's the threat. The threat isn't even that we'll enter the war. The threat is you will lose our diplomacy and you might have, you know, you might lose mm-hmm. your embassy here. But that's kind of the threat, which a little bit works in that the Germans will change strategy slightly after a couple other attacks on passenger ships. But it's really sort of so mealy-mouthed of him, I feel like. It really is. He wants both ways, I think, in very Wilson way. Yeah, you know, you can't have it both ways. I will say just sort of on the British side, this is probably the single greatest recruitment tactic for the British armed forces the Germans could have initiated. It has maybe in many ways the opposite effect. It doesn't scare the British. It says, oh, oh, this is how it's going to be. I mean, there are like lines in the days after Lusitania down the block of people trying to enlist. People are flowing into the factories to come and work. Of course, the British government, like you said, it feeds that war propaganda machine. Winston Churchill has, I think, one of the best quotes related to this, which is, quote, The poor babies who perished in the ocean struck a blow to German power more deadly than could have been achieved by the sacrifice of 100,000 men, end quote. And he's correct in that nothing is going to motivate you more to get involved in something like this than to have this image of innocent people killed within minutes with no chance to survive, no chance to fight back. That is going to do way more than reading news about some soldiers on a battlefield. And so it is, in I think, a miscalculation on the German part because 
people thought this war would be over kind of quick. What's been dragging on? Some people are going, how likely is it that we can do this? Now we've got this blockade. We're losing access to food and supplies coming in by ship because we've got all this warfare. Maybe this isn't such a good idea. And then the Germans do this and it's like, oh no, yeah, we're absolutely no step off our lip on this. We're in, we're doing it. We're in. And Wilson's going to hold us out because Wilson's facing down re-election. And Wilson's also, in the midst of all of this, he's like courting his second wife as the reports are coming in for like the Lusitania sinking. He's off going on dates. <laughs> Good times. Woodrow Wilson is legitimately awful. That's <laughs> just, he is. Um, and so he was facing down an election. He wants to get re-elected in 1916, which indeed he does, because he is going to say, hey, we, he kept us out of the war. And so in order to do that, he has to, actually has to keep us out of the war. And so he does until the election is over. And then in January of 1917, after he's been reelected, so uh, over 18 months later, the Germans announced that they're going to again conduct unrestricted submarine warfare. And then there's the Zimmerman telegram, which we should do a pot about separately. The Zimmerman telegram is really interesting. And that yeah. coupled with the Russians leaving the war are going to be the two big things that propel uh, Wilson. Uh, the Russians, a more longer term reason we didn't want to get involved, seem to be support supporting, you know, the autocratic czar. Uh, and so when the Russian Revolution happens, suddenly we're facing a different Russian regime. And then the Zimmerman telegram provides the real spark to get us to declare war on Germany, get Wilson finally to do something. So this is, the Lusitania is not the spark, but it is one of the reasons that the U.S. eventually goes to war. Like, it's in everybody's mind, uh, the idea that Americans died in German hands, and so that's sort of in, it's one of the reasons that we go to war, but it is not the immediate cause. Yeah, it it is absolutely an influence, but I think it's Wilson's reaction to it that also really is very illuminating about his desire sort of to remain neutral for political reasons more so than almost anything else. And yeah, they found the Lusitania not all that long after. Uh, 1935, there had been kind of expeditions to find it, but the shipwreck site was officially discovered and divers went down to explore the wreckage, salvage pieces. There had been, over the course of the 20th century, quite a bit of debate over who owned the wreckage because it's real close to Ireland. So there was a lot of kind of debate back and forth, but there has been quite a bit of exploration of that and sort of an understanding of it and pieces from it have been salvaged for museums and things of that nature. And just to sort of just illustrate that we're not so far separated from any of these things we really talk about on the podcast, the last known survivor passed away in 2011, which was a decade ago. Um, Her name was Audrey Lawson Johnston. She was only three months old when she was on the ship. Her mother uh, is going to get into a lifeboat and she will survive. But not even a decade ago, or a little more than a decade ago, we still had a survivor of this event. So it was not, not that far in the distant past. Yes. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting to me. The wreck is in bad shape. It listed dangerously on its starboard side, so it's re- coming to rest on its starboard side, which means that's basically been uh, crushed. And because of, you know, we're not far from land, there's a lot of debris and things like that that are unrelated to the Lusitania. It's fishing nets and things like that that have kind of come around it. And so it is in actually not great shape. Worse shape, they estimate, than the Titanic, which is under a lot more pressure and in a different place in the ocean. But the Lusitania is apparently still down there. They have brought up portions 
portions of it. Uh, and in fact, there is a, a propeller is uh, located at a um, maritime museum in Liverpool, sort of a tribute to uh, Lusitania. That was where it was supposed to end up, was Liverpool. And so that's that part of that is there. And that's Lusitania. Yeah, I will. I wanted to mention one little DC connection, and there are there are others. But there is a woman buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Her name is Kathleen Kay. She was on the Lusitania. She was British. She was about 16 at the time. Some newspaper reports would say she was 12, 13, but she was 16 by her own account. And she gets into a lifeboat and she's in a lifeboat and there's a crew member rowing and the crew member rowing, 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 passes out, faints. And she took over rowing their lifeboat at 16 and she was said to have spent most of that ride comforting and assisting other women who were panicked in the moment and she was said to have stayed calm cool collected um there would be newspaper stories about her being sort of this heroine and she just became a little bit of a well-known figure and it didn't stop her from traveling. She loved to travel. She actually said she figured she'd been through the worst thing you could be on in a ship. And so it didn't put her off of going on to ocean liners again. And eventually she married an artist, an American artist, Carl William Braden, and he served in World War One. And so he's buried at Arlington as a veteran of the First World War and she's buried there with him. So um, there are other little DC connections, but I sort of love that you can go to Arlington and visit the gravesite of a survivor of the Lusitania. And it's a nice illustration that it very much was connected to what was happening at home. I love that too. I I like this. Lusitania is so interesting. There's a great book about it. The um, Dead Wake. Yes, Larson's book about it. It's really great. And Lusitania is, it's a, when you go talk about the First World War and the American entry into it, this is one of the like signposts that they talk about as we're entering the war. So Lusitania is fun. We've been wanting to talk about this one for a while. So thanks for coming along with us, gang. Thank you so much. We appreciate all of our listeners. Thank you, thank you, thank you again to our patrons. We are continuing on through the year. We'd love to hear your thoughts and opinions on what topics you want us to cover. You can always reach out to us on socials. You can email us to our guide tell all at gmail.com. We'd love to see you out on a tour this fall or this holiday season. So come join us in DC if you can. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next month. Yes, thanks friends. Bye. All right.